pretty amazing. Well, today we wrap up our, our study in Deuteronomy, and I want to begin with a, a hypothetical that's not so hypothetical for some of you. Let's say you have teenagers in your house, and you're leaving for the weekend, but they're staying home. And so you give them very detailed instruction, right? So here are the things you can do, you should do. Here are some things you, you don't do. And so you're, you're very specific. Uh, feed the dog twice a day. Do not eat pizza for breakfast. Uh, wash the dishes. Uh, be home by 10 p.m. every night or maybe, uh, how late, maybe 10, 15 now. Uh, <laughs> come home at night. Um, no parties at the house while we're gone, okay? And so you tell them these detailed instructions, and before you leave, you, you have a thought. You say, actually, two more things I, I want to tell you. Uh, and you want to tell them their, the benefits of obeying what you've just told them to do, and you want to tell them the consequences of disobeying uh, what you've told them to do. And so if you do what we have asked you and told you to do, we will continue to provide food and shelter for you. <laughs> and if you don't, we'll reconsider. Everything's on the table. And so you, you're just, sometimes it's just important to be very, very clear about these types of things. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses tells the people they're about to enter the promised land. He gave them this very detailed list of things they should do and things they shall not do. But at the end of the book, in chapter 27 and 28, he also tells them, here are the blessings of obedience, and here are the consequences of disobedience. And this was supposed to be more motivation, fresh motivation to obey God. And so uh, articulating these blessings and curses was important. Last week, I looked at the blessings in Deuteronomy 28, and God basically promised you'll experience abundance and prosperity in every area of your life if you obey. Today, we're going to look at the, the opposite. We're going to look at what, what are called the curses of disobedience. And uh, they were supposed to hear these curses, and they were to be a deterrent to sin, and they were supposed to conclude if those are the consequences, we don't want that for ourselves and for our children and for our children's children. And remember that God didn't merely want external obedience. He wanted them to love him, to love him from the heart. And so after we look at the consequences of disobedience in the old covenant, uh, we're going to see that there are still consequences for disobedience for those of us who believe in Jesus, who are living under the new covenant. But we're also going to see that the context is very different. It's very, very different. And so we want to think very carefully about that uh, the whole way through. But especially when we get there, we want to think very carefully about disobedience, what it, the, the consequences are in our lives. The first consequences in the, in the Old Covenant, uh, there are two lists of curses. One is found in Deuteronomy 27 and one in, in 28. And before we look at those lists, I want to just make a, a couple of observations about these lists. Uh, first, uh, the list here in, in chapter 27 generally follows the Ten Commandments. And so it starts with, with disobeying the commandments to honor God alone, and then it talks about the consequences if you disobey the commandments of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so it talks about sins such as deception, injustice, sexual sins, and violence. And so that's the first observation, generally follows the, the flow of the, the Ten Commandments. Secondly, what we're going to notice is that after each curse is pronounced, the people were told to respond or answer with the word, amen. 
In other words, Moses had them agree ahead of time, if we disobey this, yes, this is the appropriate consequence. And so it's a very sobering thing for them to pronounce, amen, yes, you're right, so be it. And so let's look at this passage, and uh, beginning of verse 15, it reflects the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. And imagine being on the plains of Moab and hearing this and then responding, amen. So we read this, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Verse 16 reflects the fifth commandment, which is honor your father and mother. Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. And the final ten curses reflect the final five commandments against murder, adultery, stealing, and bearing false false witness, and then coveting what your neighbor owns. And so listen as I read verses 17 through 26. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's skirt, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with an animal, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or of his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person, and all the people shall say, Amen. And then verse 26, which we'll, we'll see quoted in the New Testament later, is this. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. And so there's no doubt, right? Very little, very little wiggle room there in terms of what God commanded and what the consequences were. And when it talks about a curse, it's not like a magic curse that God is, is, is putting on people. It's more a pronouncement that you're going to experience these tragic consequences uh, if you disobey. And Chris Wright points out that the progression in this passage is significant, that those who sin against God by not honoring him exclusively eventually end up sinning against their neighbor by not loving their neighbor as themselves. And so the consequence is a breakdown of all the structures of society between husbands and wives, uh, parents and children, uh, business dealings, uh, caring for the poor and the weakness in, weak, weakness in, uh, in their, their communities. And so everything would break down. Well, the list in chapter 28 gives more specific consequences of disobedience. And last week we saw that the blessings included prosperity in every area of life. What we're going to see today is that disobedience brings about uh, uh, it actually brings about uh, uh, consequences in these exact same areas of life. Actually, the blessings are reversed. And so if you were with us last week, what I'm about to read sounds very familiar to what we saw in verses 3 through 6 because just the opposite is said. And so I want to read verses 15 through 19. But it shall come about 
We're in chapter 28. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And so instead of prosperity, they would experience hardship and deprivation in every area of life. And so the blessings were reversed for disobedience. Look down at verse 25, how their enemies would have their way with them. Remember last week he said, if you're following God, your enemies will come in one direction, but they will flee seven. They'll, they'll end up in chaos, running for their lives. Well, notice what happens to Israel if she disobeys. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them, and you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Look at verse 27. He mentions here the plagues that uh, the Egyptians experienced, Israel's enemies experienced. He says in verse 27, The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be treated. And so I don't need to go on, right? You get the picture. It's a brutal description of what would happen if they didn't obey the commands, if they, if they violated the covenant with their God. And the rest of the chapter, read it when you, when you can, but it talks about how if you're so set on worshiping the gods of the nations, you will actually be taken into exile, and there you can worship their gods, but not in my land, not in the promised land. And so if I were going to summarize, I'd say, yes, God was slow to anger. God is slow to anger. But eventually, if they would not turn back to him, if they would not obey, they would experience these devastating consequences for their disobedience. Uh, They would would experience the natural consequence of their rebellion. Well, what about the consequences of disobedience in the new covenant? Well, as always, Always, we fix our eyes on Jesus and we preach the gospel to ourselves because we have the blessing of living after the cross, after the resurrection of Jesus. And one passage that's especially relevant for us after looking at Deuteronomy is Galatians chapter 3. And in this chapter, Paul is, is arguing that, well, there were some that came to Galatia, and they said, if you really want to be a good Christian, you have to be a good Jew. You have to keep the law, the law of Moses. And so what Paul does, in a fascinating way, he argues that, no, don't look at the law. Look before the law. Look at Abraham. God promised to Abraham, Abraham and you, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he said, and how, how did Abraham, how was Abraham saved? How was he righteous? He was righteous by faith. And so he's arguing that if you want to experience the blessing of Abraham, you don't go to the law. No, you believe. You have faith the way Abraham did. And he quotes quotes Genesis 12, in which God promised Abraham that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then he concludes this in verse 9 of Galatians 3. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And so since the old covenant, the law, is now obsolete, a person is no longer blessed 
by keeping the law. Blessings flow from Jesus. Blessings flow from experiencing the new birth. And the other side of the coin is that curses do not come from not obeying the law. And uh, in verse 10, he quotes the verse we read earlier, Deuteronomy 27, 26. And, uh, and this is exciting, okay? This, this is what Paul writes. He says, For as many as are, the, are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, and this is, this is our verse, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. And so what he's saying there is that if you want to live under the law, you're going to be under a curse because nobody can flawlessly keep the demands of the law. And the Old Testament, the law uh, allowed for that, right? There was this elaborate system of sacrifices. And so if you sinned and you were under this curse, you could bring an animal sacrifice that would atone for your sin uh, until, until the next time where you needed to make additional sacrifices. But notice in verses 13 and 14, the stark contrast for those of us living under the new covenant. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, and there he quotes Deuteronomy 21, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 21, and it basically said, if you're executed by being hung from a tree, you are cursed. And being crucified on wooden beams was basically, in essence, you were being hung on a tree. And so Jesus was cursed on the cross. But he points out, Jesus was sinless, so he wasn't cursed for his sin. But our sin was laid upon him. Our sin fell upon him. He became a curse for us so that those who believe in him might experience the blessing of Abraham, the blessing that was was promised to Abraham. And did you notice in verse 14 what that blessing is? It is the promised Holy Spirit. In this life, the, the core, primary, fundamental blessing that we receive as followers of Jesus in this life is that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. This is the blessing nobody, nothing can take away. God is with you and God is for you. So isn't that staggering? That's the gospel. That is the good news. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you become a new creation. You might not always feel like it, but it's true nonetheless. This is not just religious talk. This is reality. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are a new creature. The curse that you deserve fell on Jesus Christ. That's reality. And so now we ask, if that's the reality, that we really are new creatures in Christ, how should we think about obedience? How should we think about disobedience? And a lot could be said on this, but I want to just make two two fundamental points. The first is that we no longer think in terms of condemnation and curse. Okay, those categories are no longer appropriate for the person who is in Christ Jesus. The gospel, the good news, is that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
If you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creature in Christ. You now stand before God blameless, holy. What happened to Christ happened to you. You died with him. You were buried with him. You were raised up to newness of life. And just as Jesus is alive to the Father, you are that alive to the Father, okay? You are complete in Christ. You've been raised up and seated with him. Okay, this is not a pep talk, okay? I'm not giving you a motivational speech. I'm talking about reality. This is what's true of those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? And so if we shouldn't think in terms of condemnation and curses, how should we think about disobedience? Well, the New Testament suggests that we think primarily in relational terms when it comes to disobedience. One of of the dominant themes, one of the dominant metaphors used in the New Testament is that the church, the body of Christ, we are a spiritual family. We are a spiritual family. God is our father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so when we think about disobedience, we think in relational terms. What does this do to my heavenly father and his heart? What does this do to my brothers and sisters in Christ? So a couple words about obedience and disobedience. So if you understand uh, sin in relational terms, obedience is doing what your heavenly father wants you to do. You're saying to God, I'm your child. You're my father. You know more than me. You are wiser than me. What you say, yes, it's good. It's right. It's what I should do. And so when we obey our heavenly father, we act in a way that's compatible or consistent with our identity in Christ. This is who I am. I'm a new creature in Christ. I have these new appetites. I'm going to behave in a way that's consistent with that. So this past week, uh, I was obedient in an area. Uh, shock, news, news flash there. But uh, God gave me assignment. It was a pretty difficult assignment, actually, but I was just convinced God wanted me to have this conversation. And I, I had this conversation it wasn't easy. It was actually sort of painful. But at the end of it, I had this satisfaction. I had this joy. I even had this, this peace because I had stepped out in faith and I had done what God wanted me to do. Did I earn anything by that? No, but I think my father was pleased. My heavenly father was pleased. So that's obedience. That's the fruit of obedience. What is disobedience? Disobedience is saying to your heavenly father, no. You think you know more than me, but I know more than you. Disobedience is acting in a way that's incompatible with our identity in Christ. It's not moving toward this, these, this appetite to please God, this appetite for righteousness and holiness. It, it's acting in ways that are inconsistent. And unless our hearts become incredibly hardened when we sin, we experience this conviction of sin. There's an appropriate conviction of sin. It's not condemnation. But we have this, this twinge, this sense of, oh, I've done something that displeased God that was, that was bad for the family of faith. And uh, newsflash number two, uh, I sinned this week in, a, in another conversation. I said more than I should. And as soon as I did, I had this twinge of guilt, this, this oh, God, I'm sorry. And it wasn't condemnation. I didn't, I didn't go grovel in, the, in the, the dirt for a long time. But it was, it was a sense that, yeah, God, I shouldn't have said that. I didn't represent your name very well there. I didn't speak 
as Jesus would have spoken if he were in that situation. So that's the fruit of disobedience. There's an appropriate uh, conviction of sin. And so please understand that sin is not merely breaking a rule that you find, you know, on page 17 of the New Testament. No, sin is displeasing your heavenly father. Sin is doing something that's not great for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember in, uh, in Ephesians 4, Paul described the sin of anger, and, and he said, don't be angry that way. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's possible to cause grief to the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, the blessing of Abraham. And so that's how we should think about sin. And even though God doesn't curse us or condemn us for our sins, there are still consequences. Uh, Last week, we read the parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the house built on the, the rock and the house built on the sand. Jesus contrasted the person who hears his word and acts on it, who actually obeys, and the person who hears and then uh, disregards it or, or disobeys it. And he says, this person is wise, this person is foolish. This person, he can withstand the storms of life, but this person, a disobedient person, uh, because they have this track record of disobedience, eventually they're going to experience great calamity. That house fell, and great was its fall. Not because God cursed that person, uh, not because God condemned that person, because that person wasn't the type of person that could withstand the storms of life. Storms will come, and a life of disobedience uh, produces a life that's unprepared for what the world will throw at you. Using different imagery, Paul makes the same basic point in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, and we'll, this is the last passage we'll look at. But he appeals to the common experience of planting a field or a garden when he writes this. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will, he will also reap. Okay? Some of you are gardeners, right? Some of you are farmers. I had a farmer talk to me after first service. But if you plant, let's say okra seeds, for example. If you plant <laughs> okra, you will get okra plants, and you will harvest okra, okay? It's just, it's just amazing the way this happens. You don't plant okra seeds and then one day find, I'm harvesting sweet corn, or I'm car harvesting soybeans. No, what a person sows, okay, am I going too fast? What a person <laughs> sows, that he will also reap, okay? Right? We, we're together on that? Now, you might say, well, sometimes you sow things and you don't harvest anything. And that's true, but that's why Jesus told another parable, the parable of the four soils. We need to make sure that our hearts are good soil, that we are receptive and we are, are, are hospitable to the Word of God. But here in Galatians 6, Paul is making a different point. He's not talking about the soil of our hearts. He's talking about the seed that we sow, meaning our behavior, our specific behavior. And Paul is saying that the person who thinks that his or her behavior has no consequence, he says that person is deceived. That person is deluded. God has hardwired the principle of sowing and reaping in the fabric of the universe. And so I think we'd all agree a person would be very foolish to get up on a roof and, and mock 
the law of gravity. Get up on a roof and say, sorry, God, I don't believe that applies to me. I think I can fly. That person's very foolish. What Paul's point here is, is that a person would be equally foolish to mock God and say, my behavior has no consequences in my life. My anger, my lust, my revenge, my bitterness, uh, all of these things, no consequence in my life. Paul would say, that person is deluded. That person is deceived because what a person sows, that he will also reap. Further explanation is given in verse 8. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And I think about the flesh, it's kind of like these, these uh, habits of the mind and of the body. Like Dallas Willard used to say that sin becomes habituated in our bodies. And that's been my experience. Just like an athlete or a musician has this muscle memory, they just naturally know what to do. In the same way, when we sin over a long period of time, sin becomes habituated into our bodies where sin is more natural than not sinning, than, than obedience. Paul says, when you sow to the flesh, when you indulge the flesh in some way, the crop that will eventually be harvested is corruption. It's decay. Instead of experiencing wholeness and healing when we sow to the flesh, our lives are compromised. We experience less and less fullness. We experience less and less of the eternal life that God has given us. And and understand, God isn't cursing us for our sins. He's not condemning us for our sins. Psalm 103 even says that that God has not rewarded us according to our iniquity. He's treated us better than he should have treated us. And that's been my experience. Oh, I can't tell you. That has been my experience. He is slow to, he's gracious, he's compassionate. And yet, if we persist, if we continually sow to the flesh, we will eventually reap corruption. As you're very aware, when we sow to the flesh over time, we develop obsessions, we develop addictions that drain away our life, drain away our vitality. Uh, Earlier, Psalm 32 was read. That's what David was describing. When I remained silent about my sin, my vitality was drained away. We end up enslaved to the, the, the passions of our flesh. And so again, please understand that this, this verse, this, this truth is not an angry threat. This is like the father in Proverbs. He didn't want his son to experience calamity and sorrow, so he warned him. He said, son, when you go out into the world, you need to avoid these things because it will reap this corruption. This is, this is Paul not wanting his friends in Corinth to ex- experience all the trauma and all the sorrows of sin. And so here this is a good heavenly father telling you, I want you to experience my best. And so, can you identify an area of disobedience in your life? Most of us, yes. Very easy, very quickly. You and I would do well to to consider and just imagine what might be the corruption, what might be the fallout if I continue to indulge the flesh. 
How might your sin bring corruption into your fellowship with God and into the relationships that you care most about? How might it compromise your ability to participate fully in what God is doing in, in this world? And honestly, I think, I think we need a sense of urgency when it comes to this. Uh, I've recognized in my life, I need a sense of urgency when it comes to confronting disobedience. This is not the, the type of situation to say, yeah, good thought, maybe someday. Uh, biblically speaking, the most important day in your life is today. Uh, yesterday is history. There's no guarantee that you will have tomorrow. That's why the author of Hebrews quoted Psalm 95, and he said, Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. There is no guarantee that you will hear God's voice tomorrow. Tomorrow, you may not want to hear God's voice. You may not be here tomorrow. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Instead, soften your heart. So to the Spirit, as Paul said. Uh, Do things that invite the working of the Spirit in your life. And so instead of hiding your sin and covering it up and hoping nobody ever finds out about it, bring it out into the light to God and to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Say, would you pray for me? I need help. I can't handle this. I need wisdom. I need prayer. I need accountability. You sow to the Spirit in that way. Uh, Saturate yourself in God's Word. Let it fuel your obedience. That fuels the work of the Spirit in our lives. Pray in faith. When we sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. We don't earn eternal life, but we experience more life. We experience more fullness that, that Jesus secured for us. And this requires faith, okay? It requires believing that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That's Hebrews eleven six. You have to believe that if you're going to sow to the Spirit. And some of you, you may be in a place of cynicism and like, yeah, tried that. Doesn't work for me. You need faith. You need to believe that God is a God who acts in power when we seek him. So we're done with Deuteronomy. Uh, This is our our last message. Next week we're going to start, we're going to do eight weeks on faith. We're going to look at the gospel. How do we develop a deeper faith? How do we have faith in the first place? How do we have a strong faith, uh, a a deeper, more robust faith that will sustain us, that will allow us to trust God for these hard things in our lives? And so I hope you come with anticipation next week. Between now and then, I would encourage you, sow to the Spirit, make no provision for the flesh, so that you can experience more and more of what God wants for you. Heavenly Father, we ask you to accomplish these things in our midst. We pray, God, that you would would give us uh, the grace to pursue obedience, to put aside disobedience. God, may we be sober-minded as individuals, as families, as a church, sober-minded about uh, just the con- the, the uh, consequences we invite into our lives when we wander from your ways. God, we pray that you would make obedience joyful. Fill us full of faith. We pray for this upcoming series that we would grow and deepen in our faith in, in amazing ways, ways that allow us to experience you more fully. God, we pray these things in faith. We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.